You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast on the 20th of August 2010. This week we'll be seeing how far in advance GPs may be able to tell if someone will end up on incapacity benefit. It's the kind of pattern that might arouse suspicion uh, within the GP that things aren't going well for that patient. We'll also find out why some researchers are being asked to pay to be published in the BMJ. And the point of all of this is to try and make as much research available to uh, the world as possible without people having to pay to read it through a subscription. And finally, we'll find out about the hidden eunuchs in our society. They have been present in our society, at least across Asia. There is a common history that we have of having eunuchs in our society. But first, if you follow the British press, you can't help but notice we have a new government who are cutting spending left, right and centre. One area that's going to face big reviews is the spending on state benefits. One of the categories facing these cuts is incapacity benefit, essentially help for people who, through illness, are unable to work. In a research paper published this week online on bmj.com, Jill Morrison, a professor of general practice at the University of Glasgow, and her colleagues have looked to see if it's possible to predict which people with psychological distress are at risk of becoming dependent on state benefits. Jill joins me on the phone from Glasgow. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Thank you. So for a start, how do people qualify to receive this incapacity benefit in the UK? When we carried out our research, the GP would fill out a form and that would allow them to take time off work, um, usually of a few weeks, but up to six months. After six months off work, most patients would undergo a, a special assessment um, and they would, if they were found at that time um, to be unfit to go back to work for the long term, they would then progress on to incapacity benefit. So the GP is the gateway mm-hmm. to moving on to having a work capability assessment and, and then um, access to the, the benefit system. Sure. And if you could just qualify for us how many people are are on incapacity benefit and how much does it cost the government every year? Okay, well, in 2007, which is the most recent figures I have, the UK government um, estimated that 2.5 million people were claiming um, incapacity benefit. And it's been estimated that the cost to the UK economy is over $100 billion. Now, clearly, that's not just in benefit claimants. That's the cost of people not working mm-hmm. and, and employers having to replace them. But it's clearly a, an enormous cost. Yes, absolutely. And that's led to uh, a push to reduce those numbers. That's right. So you look to see if patterns in the behaviour of patients visiting their GPs could be predictive of, of later going on to these benefits. Could you just tell us how you did that? Yes, um, we looked at routine data in the British Household Panel Surveys and we also did some some other work with the Scottish Health Surveys. And we looked at 17 years of the British Household Panel Surveys. These are surveys that are carried out with large um, numbers of the, the population every year and people are visited by researchers who ask them lots of questions about um, their health and their employment and their social circumstances and so on. Sure. 
And what we looked at were the patient's health. We looked at their consultations with their general practitioners. And we also looked at how they completed the general health questionnaire, which gives a measure of psychological health. Mm-hmm. So once you did that, did you find that there was a a pattern? Yes, we found that there was a relationship between patients becoming frequent consultors with their GP, and we defined that as over 10 consultations per year, which is more than double the average consultation rate. And we found that patients started to consult more frequently up to three years before they went on to incapacity benefit if they were demonstrating signs of psychological distress. Sure. So how far in advance do you think that pattern could be, could be verified? Is there a point that could flag up you know, that this might be a potential future for them? It's difficult because we didn't do a sort of prospective study to see um, how accurately we would be able to to predict that. But I think if a GP knows a patient well and has, you know, perhaps been looking after them and then suddenly notices that this patient seems to be coming more and more uh, frequently um, to the surgery, I think Mm -hmm. GPs would be starting to think perhaps there is a psychological element to it. Certainly from two years before they start to claim benefit, they've got a significant um, increase in their uh, GHQ-12 caseness, which is what we use to describe psychological symptoms. So I think probably from about two years before they go on to some kind of state benefit, it's now called employment support allowance, you know, it's the kind of pattern that might arouse suspicion uh, within the GP that things aren't going well for that patient. And one of the things that they should include within the consultation, one of the questions they should ask is, how are they they finding work? Now, if a GP does suspect that the patient's displaying a sort of warning pattern, Mm. are there ways of of helping people to head off their their path? I mean, I think that's the the really important question. And and we don't know if there are any interventions that are... Um, successful at at that point. But you could hypothesize that if perhaps somebody is finding that their job is becoming more stressful, and that may be contributing to problems with anxiety and depression, if they were able to go to their employer or their occupational health service at work and discuss adjustments to um, their job to reduce that stress, it may then be possible to keep that person in work. And we know that once somebody goes on to long-term benefit, then it's very difficult for them to come off it after a number of years of not working. Absolutely. Now, the new government is sort of planning to roll in things like incapacity benefits into a GP's remit. Um, Do you think that sort of more holistic look at health and welfare will, will bring this further forward in GPs' minds and maybe help to stem the tide of people going on to incapacity benefit? There's no doubt that the sickness certification and the benefit system side of GP work is something that does cause a certain amount of conflict within the, the GP role. Mm-hmm. So GPs see themselves primarily as the, the patient advocate 
and they don't really want to be the sort of policemen of the benefit system. I think that work is part of the whole patient and, and often it's a very important part of a patient's life and, and functioning and so on. But I, I think that expecting GPs to somehow be more responsible for um, the benefit system or, or for determining who has access to that benefit system, I would think that most GPs do not necessarily want that extra responsibility. And I, I, I think it remains to be seen if um, giving GPs a greater role in this will actually make improvements and prevent patients transiting on to uh, long-term benefits. Great. Well, Jill, thank you very much for joining us today. And you can read that paper online on bmj.com. Now, publication fees. Researchers going through the publication process with us will notice, at some point, they'll be asked a new question. That is, whether or not they have funds to pay for open access publication. I'm joined in the studio by Trish Groves, a deputy editor at the BMJ who looks after research. So, Trish, what's this change all about? Well, lots and lots of other journals have been asking authors to pay a fee when their research is accepted for publication uh, for quite a long time now, and the BMJ hasn't done this up until now. But we've got to a point where so many funders of research in medicine are making funds available, and the point of all of this is to try and make as much research available to uh, the world as possible without people having to pay to read it through a subscription. Could you just break down how is that money spent? Well, we get about 8,000 articles a year uh, submitted to the BMJ, and around half of those are original research papers. They have to be read on, on the day of submission, by, uh, usually by a medical editor, so you know, a highly trained person who's not cheap to employ. Uh, they read the articles, they send them off to a more senior editor for screening. Then those articles are uh, seen by reviewers if they've got through those first couple of stages. And uh, if they survive all of that, they go to a weekly manuscript meeting where all the research editors at the BMJ, an editorial advisor and a statistician get together and decide which ones are going to make it into the BMJ. Now, all of that, as you might imagine, costs quite a lot of money and time, not, not least all the sort of administrative handling of all of that. And then there are the costs of actually editing and publishing uh, accepted articles, both online and in print. We really don't accept expect a huge amount of money to come in from this, but it's a source of money that is available, is there to support open access publishing of, of research, and we feel that the time has come for the BMJ to join many other journals in saying, well, your paper has been accepted for the BMJ. If you've got access to funds from your funder for publication, then could you please send it to us? Sure. So does this mean that if you have got some money there to pay for it, you are going to get any sort of preferential treatment over those who don't? No, absolutely not. When they submit a research article to our online submission website, the acknowledgement letter they get back will say, uh, just to warn you that if your work um, is, is funded by an organisation that provides open access publication fees, at some later point, if your article is accepted, we will ask you if you could pass that fee on to us. So that's all. It's not saying that you've got to go off and sort it out now. This, this whole thing will only apply to articles 
after acceptance. So you won't hear anything more until your research article is accepted. And then again, in the acceptance letter, we'll say we've made our decision. You know, this has had nothing to do with the peer review and the editorial decision making. But now we've got this far and the paper's accepted. Um, if you can um, claim the publication free from your funder, please go ahead and do so. Okay. So how much is it actually going to cost? The fee is going to be £2,500. Overall, it'll be a very small contribution to the costs of peer reviewing and publishing research, the BMJ. Now, we've been talking now about what authors will see. Will readers of the BMJ, either online or in print, notice any difference at all? No, not at all. We'll be publishing the same kind of research from the same kind of researchers. We're changing nothing in our peer review process or our criteria for selection of research. And uh, the papers will still be fully and completely accessible on bmj.com as usual, with a shortened version in the print BMJ as usual. Thanks, Trish. And you can see some FAQs about that on bmj.com. They'll be linked to from the podcast site. Now, the final part of our podcast is looking at a group of men who have existed for millennia, yet are still steeped in mystery. If I play you a snippet of a recording made in the Sistine Chapel in 1902, it might give you an idea. That was Alessandro Moreschi, more famously known as the Last Castrato. He was the last of a group of singers who had their testicles removed at a young age to preserve their singing voices. It wasn't just singers, though. Eunuchs were widespread throughout history. In a personal view, in this week's BMJ, Richard Vassersug, Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology at Dalhousie University in Canada, and his colleague Tucker Lieberman, discuss why the modern eunuch remained so invisible. Richard joins me on the phone from Halifax. So, Richard, could you start by setting up the story for us? Uh, what's the history of castration? It has been a, a normal part of the social history uh, for, from one end of Asia to another from, for at least the last 3,000 years. If you look at actually the stability of long dynastic governments from Istanbul to China, all of them have had eunuchs, that is a castrated caste, uh, in the higher positions in government. Um, and, of course, uh, there was also independently this phenomenon of the castrati, the p- people castrated for their singing voices, that is, castrated before puberty, uh, which was a singing phenomenon across Europe um, from about 1550 to about 1850. So it, they have been present in our society, at least uh, across Asia. There is a common history that we have of having eunuchs in our society. Yeah, but it isn't just across Asia, and it's not some sort of historic thing, is it? You say now that so many men are actually living like that these days. That's an important point. I mean, we sort of think of this as something from the past that doesn't happen anymore. But in fact, uh, because of hormonal, as it's called, treatment for advanced prostate cancer, which is androgen deprivation, which is achieved by either surgically or chemically uh, shutting down the, the testicles, we now have, although we don't usually talk about it this way, more living eunuchs now than probably any other time in history. Hmm. But they're quite a hidden population, aren't they? Yes, and I think that's a, a good point. I mean, it's sort of ironic that we have more of them now, uh, yet they are so invisible. And I think the language is a, the primary issue. I mean, that is, we have a stereotype in the West of a eunuch as being a totally disempowered 
person. Mm-hmm. When the Western world, I think, first ran into Unica guards in the Ottoman Empire, uh, they saw these people that were sort of huge, large, but just following rules uh, and castrated to serve others. Uh, and it was such a shock to the European sensitivities that uh, the word eunuch uh, got sort of converted from being a person who had a lot of power, which in fact they did. They were the diplomats, not just the guards. Mm-hmm. They were the powerful people who could go in and out of the castles of various empires without uh, risk of being killed. Uh, so they were the people who knew what was going on. And there's a fabulous history about how empowered eunuchs were. But that's sort of hidden to the West and not known uh, so that the term has affected people's willingness to let others know that they are, in fact, androgen-deprived uh, by either chemical or surgical castration. I think there's a problem here, and that is that if we're not being honest about our status, we can't help patients adapt to the side effects of the effect, no, the side effects of androgen deprivation. I mean, that's certainly one issue that concerns me greatly. Is if we could be honest in the language, we might be able to help people adapt to androgen deprivation. So, do you think people need to embrace their history, um, almost be proud of it? Well, I think we certainly minimally need to study what what are in fact what is the reality of androgen deprivation. If you have the presumption that we're not really castrating men now and that they're really just men, then if the men are in fact experiencing changes in their their personality, their cognitive processing, and so forth, um, then then they have a problem adapting to it. For the prostate cancer patients, uh, it's a profound problem because if they say have a heterosexual marriage uh, and they're supposed to be normal but they've lost their libido, then the price the, there's a cost that they're suffering, but there's also a cost that their partner is suffering. Yes, so people would automatically understand about the, the sexual uh, changes that would go on, but could you tell us a little bit about the, the psychological differences? Yes, I think it's intriguing. So here's an example. Um, uh, both for, for instance, male-to-female transsexuals who are androgen-deprived and the prostate cancer patients, they talk about um, changes in emotionality so that, and one of the things that's best documented is in an increased incidence of tearfulness. Well, um, for, say, a transsexual, an individual who wishes to be a female, who is a male, uh, to be more emotional and tearful at a movie or whatever um, is considered being more feminine and respected. For the prostate cancer patient in a, in a macho society where men are not supposed to cry, um, being tearful could be very embarrassing. Uh, and what we see with just from some of our work with prostate cancer couples is that, that there are couples who... Um, actually say we're better now, we're more like each other, he cries at movies, we share Kleenex and they laugh. Some of the work you've done is looking at not necessarily just the emotional changes but how people interact with each other uh, post-castration. Um, yes, um, we're, we're just starting to, to look at that and we mostly have a historical model. Um, but again, um, if you look at what, what, what testosterone does in the average teenage male, I mean, things like road rage, uh, a male, a young male might on the highway uh, feel like another car cut him off and, and not want to put up with that and feel like he should challenge the driver. An average low testosterone or lower testosterone individual, such as, say, a female, gets cut off on the highway by another driver and doesn't think, I've got to take that on. This is a combat situation. Thinks, listen, I can only lose if I take on a battle here. I'm not going not gonna to do it. And we now know that, for instance, individuals who are lower in testosterone make assessments if they've lost in a small confrontation 
about whether they wish to escalate the confrontation or not. And typically, lower individuals are smart enough not to escalate a competition. High individuals typically do. And in fact, when you look at testosterone levels, for instance, there's some studies going back oh, more than a, a decade now, uh, where they looked at testosterone low levels in uh, soldiers. Uh, the generals had the lowest level, but uh, that is they, they would be strategizing. The, the field soldiers who were needed to shoot and not think, but to shoot, I mean, at, at least in the right direction, uh, they had the highest testosterone. So for combat, and that, that's what you want. I mean, individuals that are combative, high testosterone is good. For individuals who are, who are strategists and look at the longer picture, low testosterone, it can actually be advantageous. So that kind of goes back to the historic model where you were saying that um – men were in positions of power and diplomats and, and so on like that. Yes, and, that, and that's actually one of the more intriguing things about the history. I mean, for instance, uh, there's a statement in one book about the Ottoman Empire where the most powerful individual in the government was the senior eunuch uh, official. Um, and in fact, we usually think of the potentate, uh, the sultan, or, who had multiple wives as the empowered individual. But in fact, he was essentially a male version of a queen ant or queen bee. He was a breeder, but he couldn't go out into society. He had to be isolated. He would be killed. But the eunuchs could. So the eunuchs knew what was going on. And uh, to both having the access to the society at large and having the ability to, to strategize certainly historically um, is confirmed. Um, as a, as a one positive attribute of being somewhat lower in testosterone. And that article is available in print and online this week. That's all for this week. Next week we'll have a look at comparative effectiveness research in the USA and how President Obama's plans have been watered down on their trip through Congress. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.